Father, we thank you for your living, active word. And we pray that through your spirit, you will change us as a result of engaging with you this morning. Amen. I watched a documentary recently called The Truth About Sleep. Something like that. Michael Mosley, don't know if any of you saw it. He's the guy that does all these sort of medical things and puts people through all these trials. And uh, I discovered in looking at this program that I am sleep deprived. Um, you, there's a test you can do with a metal tray and a spoon, which I'll tell you about later if you want. And, uh, but put it this way, he said 10 minutes you're on the edge, 5 minutes if you fall asleep, well then you're sleep deprived. I'm well within the five minutes, I'm certain. <clears throat> because the problem I have is that I don't sleep when I want to sleep. And I do sleep when I don't want to sleep. Do you know what I mean? I have these problems uh, with afternoon sessions. If you go to a seminar, I just... I don't want to sleep, but I do. I could fall asleep in the born identity... Uh, that's how bad it is. And I once almost fell asleep when talking to a guy. And that really was bad. So if you see me ever excusing myself and going to the bathroom while I'm talking to you, it's because I'm in there cleaning my wrists and washing my face. But we're looking at a story today where a guy slept. And it's not the first time he slept. Peter slept at Gethsemane. Peter slept at the Transfiguration. Peter's sleeping in prison the night before he's due to be arrested. What a guy. I like Peter because he suffers from the same problem I have. And sometimes the sleep got him into trouble. This story is part of the new series we're looking at called To the Ends of the Earth. And this story in Acts 12 is about problems. It's about prayer. It's about peace. But it's also about release. Just about a year ago, we finished the series on Acts chapters 1 to 11 called Sent. And we were reading in Acts 1, 8, Jesus said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And he said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in Acts 1 to 11, we have followed the steps of the early church, and we've seen that, that the gospel was taken from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. The second part of Acts takes us in that next part of that journey to the, to the ends of the earth, hence the name of our series. And so, the story so far um, is, is as follows. Basically, to cut a long story short, Lots of people have been coming to faith from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, um, but not yet to the ends of the earth. There's evidence of signs and wonders. There's significant church growth. The church uh, and the gospel has spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And even when famine came, the church shared and, and helped the people out of famine. Saul, the persecutor, well, he became a Christian. And the gospel most recently was extended to the Gentiles through Peter and Cornelius. And Jesus' words were coming, through, coming true, that it was being spread. They were being his witnesses, and they were doing so with the, with the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And there's now, in the next half of Acts, about to happen something huge where the gospel's taken to the ends of the earth. But first, a great setback, and that's what we're going to look at today. Today, we're talking about a story of problems that led to prayer of a guy who experienced peace in the midst of this and then release. So first the problem, and we pick it up in verse 1, and it says this in verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. So the background to Herod, well, Herod's a guy that I kind of, uh, well, he's a guy, I don't know how to put this, I was going to say I kind of like him, I don't like him at all. Um, but the fact that he's called Herod's really useful to me because I'm useless with names. And there's a whole stack of Herods and he's just called Herod all the time. So there's a Herod in the very beginning uh, of the Gospels, Herod the Great, who was an Edomite. He uh, descended from Esau, so he wasn't a Jew. He was the one that was around when Jesus was born. Um, uh, he was the one that killed all of the children under the age of two. He was pretty ruthless in Bethlehem. He was pretty ruthless. In fact, he had a whole stack of wives and most of them he executed not uh, you you think twice about receiving a proposal from Herod the Great <laughs> then Herod the Great he had a number of sons many of whom were executed one was Antipas he was the one who executed uh, John the Baptist he was the he was in charge of Galilee and he was one of Herod's sons. This one now, Herod Agrippa, he was the grandson. He was Herod Antipas's nephew. And he was only around for about three or four years in terms of his rulership. And he was educated in Rome, which was not a popular thing for the Jews because they're kind of, they're the Gentiles. They're the, they're the, they're the, the unclean ones. Although his grandmother was a Jew, so he was partly Jewish and he aspired to their favor and he wanted the Jews to like him. He was even circumcised and followed some of the Jewish traditions. And now in order to kind of get their support, he started to persecute those extreme new Christians, the ones who were now accepting Gentiles into the faith. And so we see this pendulum swinging from encouragement and miracles and fantastic things to suddenly challenge and suffering and persecution. It seems to be the way throughout church history that this pendulum swings. There are times of challenge and there's times of incredible encouragement. This was about 11 years since the stoning of Stephen. And miracles had happened. The spread of the gospel was happening. And I would say people were saying, come and join us. This is a happening faith. It's a really good thing to do. Look at what's happening. You're on the winning team here. And now, all of a sudden, persecution. The picnic is over. Arrests are happening. And they're suffering. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death. One of the actual apostles. This was a key guy. How must the church have felt then? Just in that moment. Not knowing what was going to happen next. Those are the sort of times, aren't they, when we start to say, what's going on, God? What, what on earth is happening? How come Herod's getting away with this? Why did James actually have to die? 
And so verses 3 and 4. When Herod saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. And Herod intended to bring him forth for public trial after the Passover. Apparently, normally, the prisoners were between two uh, guards who had a chain. He was chained, one on each side. And Herod put four guards on duty with Peter, just to be sure, over four different watches. And so the problems and suffering started in earnest. First James. Now Peter, trial, execution is imminent. What must they have thought? In times of challenge, we have unwanted, or not unwanted, we often have unanswered questions. Why do bad things happen to people who don't seem to deserve them? Why do good people seem to get away with things? And even as we look at the end of the story, we know that Peter was released. Why did James have to die and Peter was released? Because we know that James was, uh, James was martyred. We've read that, but, but Peter was delivered. What's going on, God? The church may have been saying. As I was looking at this, I was thinking, you know, Jesus never promised us comfort or wealth. In fact, he promised the opposite. He said, whoever wants to follow me or to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You see, Jesus promised something else. He didn't promise comfort, but he did promise life. He promised life to the full, not life in all its comfort. He promised relationship, freedom, hope, eternal life, but also challenge. And he calls us to faithfulness, especially, I would suggest, in hard times. That's when it's hardest. God called James home. A huge surprise for the church. But it was no surprise to God. Because if you look in Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 37... This is what happened. James and his brother John asked Jesus if they could sit at Jesus' right and left. And this is what they said to Jesus. When you sit on your glorious throne, we want, you to, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on the left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? Oh yes, they replied, we are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or who will sit on my left. You see, James, God knew, was going to be delivered from trial. James was going to be Absent from the body and present with the Lord, he actually got the good gig. Because he was in a great place. And Peter, instead of being delivered from trial, well, God was about to deliver him through trial. Because sometimes God does that. Sometimes he delivers us through trials. And he's with us in the trial. And sometimes he takes us out of that trial and delivers us from trial. And I've experienced both. 
Sometimes God gives us assurances and answers, and other times it's a total mystery. And the importance in these times, I believe, is that we are called to be faithful. Job is a great example of somebody. We see the behind the scenes in the story of Job. But Job was a guy who didn't understand, didn't know what was happening. He lost many of his family. He lost all of his wealth. And this is what he said. The Lord gave and the Lord take away, t- has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Faithfulness is significant in times of problems, in times of trial. And in Acts, the message is that God is in control, as we'll see. The word of God continued to spread, we're told at the end of this chapter. The spirit is on the move and nothing is going to stand in his way. And we see at the end of this chapter, but that we haven't read, is that Herod was taken out by God, literally. And the doors open. So what does this passage say to you and me if we're facing a time of trial? I believe it says this, or I believe God is saying this as I was praying through this, that your faithfulness matters to God. You matter to God. And the fact that you're trusting in God at this really tough time matters. It's significant. And so we go from problems to the next one, prayer. That was a hint. Yeah. Um, Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for him. Earnestly praying. Uh, the Greek word uh, means unremittingly, fervently. Used the, the same word was used when Jesus was praying in Gethsemane. And as I was thinking about this, sometimes we might ask this question, what's the point in praying? What difference does praying make? We know we're called to pray, But does God respond to our prayers? Does he respond if we're more fervent in our prayers? What's the difference? And we have a few, we can turn to loads of Bible verses, but um, one or two verses that come to mind are this. Luke 1, 9. Ask and it will be given to you, Jesus said. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And James says you, you don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you might spend what you get on your own pleasure. Sometimes we ask with the wrong motives. Sometimes we ask for the wrong things. But then there are times, and the next verse suggests, that we can expect big things from God. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for them? Uh, who ask him. There are things that are promised if we ask for him. Does fervent prayer make a difference? Is coming together in corporate prayer, is that significant in the whole economy of God? Strange as it may seem, as I was thinking of this, I was drawn to an example which goes on in my household. Now and again, I go down to the vivo. Seems from the sublime to the ridiculous. And just to get a message. And I, now and again I announce it. I'm, I'm heading down to the Vivo. Uh, and then a certain person, who will remain nameless, <coughs> Ellen, um, might, might hear that I'm going to the Vivo. And the first thing she might say is, can you get me some munchies? Or monster munch, I think it's called. And this is the way the expression goes. I know you're probably going to say no, but... See, when you're down there, what's the chance of getting a wee monster munch? 
And just looking at the packaging of Monster Munch, something we do in CAP Life Skills, it doesn't smack of health. Sure it doesn't. It doesn't smack of, I want to fill my daughter with this wonderful product. But there's something else happens in me, and Ellen's about to learn something. When she says that, I go, I'm in the clear, because her expectations are pretty low here. Don't tell her I said that if she's, if she's not here. Her expectations are low. When I come home, she's not going to go, oh, and I thought you were going to get me those. I kind of know, she kind of knows that she's not going to get them. Now and again, she does, and it's a big surprise. But there's something about what it is she's asking for and the expectation that she puts into that that makes it less likely for me to get them. But if one, and any father or mother will tell you this, if one of their children and one of mine said, look, Dad, I need help here. I need help. I re- not that I need monster months, but I need help. Then of course I'm going to do something about that. Of course I'm going to do something about that. Nothing's going to stop me doing something, especially if I know I can do something about that. Paul said, through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus, he was going to be released. He said that to the Philippians. Somehow God, in all his sovereignty and all his power, chooses prayer, invites us into this relationship of cooperation with our prayers. And that's exactly what he did here in the case of Peter. Prayer which was fervent, was persistent, was expectant, and was about listening to God, something happened. And we see it right throughout the Bible that prayer changes things in fervency and expectancy. Abraham pleading for Sodom. Jacob wrestling all night. Moses standing in the breach. Hannah praying for Samuel. God answered. Not always how people expected And I find this story really interesting because the next part of the story, which we're not going to read over again now, but the next story is Peter arrives um, at, he's he's, he's out of prison and he arrives at the place where they met for prayer and it looked like they were praying all night. And just picture the scene, the people are going, Lord, we pray for our brother Peter. This is an urgent situation. Peter is in prison. He needs to be released. There was fervency, we're told, in the prayer. So, Lord, just just release him. Do whatever you need to do. And suddenly, and Rhoda comes along. Says, Rhoda, the servant, she goes out and she I think it's Peter. I think it's Peter. So she goes into the, goes into the prayer meeting and says, ah, Peter, Peter's at the door. Look, <laughs> Rhoda, please, just keep the noise down. Lord, we ask you to deliver Peter. No, no, no. Peter's at the door. Yeah. Rhoda, look, seriously, what are the words they say? Peter's at the door and they say to her, you're out of your mind. Lord, pray for our brother Peter. Pray that you will deliver him. Look, wise up. Wise up. They... What's that all about? I don't, I don't understand that. Well, I do because it's kind of maybe reflects how I pray. Then she insisted, oh, it must be his angel. Like, they're expecting angels, but still Peter not to get out of prison. And when Peter was let in, they were astonished. Isn't it really strange that... Even though they didn't believe, 
or they sort of believed or didn't really understand the huge thing about God, the expectancy. What does that tell me? Yet God still delivered. It encourages me somewhat. I feel very often like the father who says, I believe, help me with my unbelief to Jesus. It's not about me, it's about God's power. And even in our smidgen of belief, God can do powerful things. Prayer is an adventure and there's a danger that in my defeat, in my cynicism, in my over-busyness, in my apathy, it can lead to me giving monster munch prayers. Do you know what I mean? Just when you're at it, Lord, I know you're probably not going to answer this, but get us a wee monster munch, would you? There's that sense of expectancy. There's that sense of apathy. Sometimes there are times when we are much more fervent. But the message here is I believe that God invites us into a journey of passion and fervency where hopelessness becomes possible. Where we hear because God speaks, where he invites us into cooperation with his sovereignty. A number of us, and I'm one of them, believe that things are, I don't know, things are starting to happen in Balnehinch. Good things to do with the kingdom of God. And as a church, I absolutely believe we as Grace Fellowship should be cooperating with God in this. He's going to do it anyway, but I want to be part of that. I want to hear him. I want to enter into this cooperation with him. I want to enter into this adventure of prayer. And so we come to the next bit. The second best part of the story for me, Peter's peace. The night before his trial, verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between the two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood at the entrance. The night before he was about to be killed, he's sleeping. There is no way I would be sleeping if I was going to trial tomorrow in all likelihood to be executed. No way. I don't know whether Peter had a problem with sleep, whether he was maybe, I learned in this documentary, you shouldn't you know, do your iPad one hour before bed. I don't know whether Peter was on his iPhone. I don't know what Peter's issue was, but, but at Gethsemane, it was about disobedience. At the transfiguration, where Jesus prayed, his appearance changed. His clothes became dazzling white. Moses and Elijah appeared. And Peter, seriously, he's in a deep sleep. Wow, what a guy. He wakes up and he gets some of it. But he missed out a lot. At Gethsemane, he was disobedient. At the transfiguration, he was unexpected. But this one here, this is good. This is about faith. Because Peter trusts God here. Peter knew what Paul was going to tell the Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How can I know that peace? Well, it came with Peter through, through a journey of faith. Death had no sting for him or threat to him because he knew what was going to happen next, I believe. And 
that was this. It was the last part release, the prison break. And this is my favorite part of the story because this is the speciality of Jesus. This is where Jesus does what he always does. Verses 7 to 9. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. A light shining in the cell. Right? Night before he's going to be uh, executed. And what does the angel have to do? He struck Peter on the side and said, quick, get up. So he still hadn't woken up. With the light in the cell. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap a cloak around you and follow me. And the angel told him, uh, sorry, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. And so the story progresses. So Peter's not really sure what's happening, but he goes with it. Verse 11, Peter came to himself and he said this. Now I know without doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people said were going to happen. Jesus came to set people free. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free, God's word says. That's not promised comfort, not promised riches, but it's promised freedom. Freedom from bondage and freedom from guilt. I was at an Alpha um, seminar uh, this week, and uh, I met a guy there called Ryan. And Ryan was one of these guys, uh, during worship, he was kind of lively. The head was going a wee bit like this. And I can't really do that, as you can see. And his head was shaved up here, and he was kind of young and trendy. And so, so much that Ryan was that I wasn't. Let's just put it that way. Uh, uh, But he was really enthusiastic. I didn't know who he was or what he was, but I heard later as he was interviewed. Ryan, when he was 14, he's probably about 24 now, uh, uh, had a serious prison record. He was in the juvenile justice system. He had all sorts of things happening. Uh, He had anger issues. He had drugs issues. He had violence issues. He had anxiety issues. And when he got out, he had a girlfriend. He got her pregnant. And uh, they didn't know that whether they were even going to be able to keep the child three months pregnant unlikely to be allowed to look after his child maybe didn't really care anyway and then someone kept at him and prayed for him and led this guy to faith and then Ryan prayed that night and never touched drugs again you know what he's doing now? he's taken Alpha into the prisons he's on fire for God He's free in the prison. That's what Jesus does. He's in the business of release and freedom. That's why I like this part of the story. But let's get back to Peter for a minute. Peter didn't have a clue what was happening. Woken up. Kicked on the side of the angel. Maybe just tapped, I'm not sure. He thought it might be a vision. But here's the thing he obeyed. He got up. He was faithful. He could have said, wow, that was some dream last night, man. That was a real trip. That prepared me for my death. But he he went with the angel. He woke up. And it strikes me when I think of myself and my mate Peter, who sleeps a lot, that I could do one of two things when God is at work. I can dream about it and talk about it. Go, oh wow, that story of Ryan's brilliant. Or I can wake up 
like Peter did, and participate in the journey. The word of God in this chapter tells us continued to spread and flourish, and Peter was part of that adventure. I have a choice to listen and, uh, and hear and be inspired about others, or I can participate in the journey. And Jesus said, if you want to have life in all its fullness, then you're going to have towering highs. Well, this was suggested. This is not a direct translation. You're going to have challenging lows. You're going to have adventure. You're going to have close calls. You're going to have mystery. You're going to have surprise. You're going to be criticized. You might be betrayed. You might be even threatened. But you get the whole package when you follow Jesus. That's what Peter got. And going to the last slide, we always ask this question, so what? In the problems that Peter faced and the church faced, what is the overriding thing and what is the implication for me? Well, first of all, God is in control. And if you're facing one of those really challenging situations, your faithfulness matters to God. Hear that this morning. Your faithfulness matters to God. I also believe God is waiting for people with courage to follow, to participate, to wake up, to leave the prison cell, and to take the next step. What does that look like for me? To not just talk about it. What is it that God is leading me into? And how am I going to not just sit in the cell and go, yeah, really interesting. Is God stirring us as a body in Balnehinch. If so, we as a church can participate in that, whatever that looks like, or we can cooperate uh, and cooperate, or we can simply watch on. Because the churches in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, God took their lampstand, but he, he went on with what he needed to do, the ones that didn't want to participate. So my challenge is, if you're aware of any opposition to God's kingdom, either in your life or in this town, pray. Pray expectantly. Pray fervently. Be open to the possibility of God answering you and me in a different way than we expected. In a moment, we're going to worship, but I want to pray now. And as I was preparing this message, I couldn't get away from the...